We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Okay, welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today played in the NFL for 15 years. He was a seven-time Pro Bowler, a six-time All-Pro at Offensive Tackle, and a three-time Offensive Lineman of the Year. His teams went to the playoffs 10 times in his first 11 seasons, including four Super Bowls and he is in both the college and the Pro Football Halls of Fame. And amazingly, in those 15 years, he missed exactly two games to injury. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ron Yeri. Ron, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Well, thank you for having me here today, Rich. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, Ron, you grew up in Southern California. You went to Bellflower High School uh, back in the early 60s. Tell, tell me a little bit about growing up you know, at that time and, and your high school years. I played football and baseball uh, until my junior year in high school. Bellflower, when we, I was born in Chicago and we moved to Paramount, California when I was three years old. And I think at five, we moved to, or, or when I was six, we moved to Bellflower. And uh, I, I was in, uh, you know, youth sports and and things like that. I wasn't in youth football because I was too big. At that time, they had a height and weight limit. I, I was I was too large to play. So I just played baseball until I got into high school. And what interested me in high school is when it when I was in the eighth grade, I went to the, one of the games. I was invited to go to a game with a couple guys, and then we snuck in. And uh, that was the biggest fear of my life, sneaking into a game. I thought we were being very bad, but I just followed the guys. And uh, so we got into the game, and I went into the bleachers, and I watched this this game, tackle football, and I fell in love with it. I knew at that moment in time, that's what I'm going to do. I want to be a football player, not professionally or not in a college, but in a high school uh, that was the game that interested me. It was, 
And the reason was it was very physical. But then, uh, uh, you know, I was just a normal kid growing up in a very safe, happy environment. Uh, neighbors got along well. Uh, we, they, we helped each other. Uh, and uh, they worked hard. You know, my dad got up every morning. He'd be out, he'd leave before 6 a.m. And uh, he'd wake me up before he left. And then he'd be out before, right about six o'clock and he didn't come in, come home until six in the evening. So he put in 12 hour days, five to even seven days a week at times. He was an, in, he was a tool and die guy, a machinist. And okay. he had his own little shop where he worked. So he, he was a hardworking guy, but he always took time out to go to my games, baseball or football or whatever it was that my, my dad was always there. And so was my mom. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I couldn't have asked for more. And yeah. uh, I was a happy kid. And you and at Bellflower in football, did I see you played fullback at least part of the time? Well, my, okay, here we go. My uh, first year I played on the, as a freshman, I think I played on the B, B team. They had the, the varsity, the JV, the B and the C, and it was all based on your weight. So I couldn't, I was too big for the C's and I was too young for varsity. So they put me on the B squad and uh, I played offensive tackle and defensive end. Back then we played both ways. And uh, after uh, the games, the guys would come up to me that were in the bleachers that weren't playing football and they were sitting up there and they were listening to the coaches. And they said the coaches were making fun of me. I was so bad. <laughs> they, they, how slow and how uh, awkward and how, you know unbalanced I was. And they just laughed at me. But it didn't bother me a bit. It honestly didn't. Uh, so I, because I liked what I was doing. I liked the game more than I liked people's opinion. So uh, I, I, as a sophomore, uh, I was on the JVs, and then my junior year, they moved me to offensive tackle and defensive end. So I played both ways my junior year as a tackle and as a defensive end, and my senior year, they moved me to fullback because I, I had a very quick start. I was quick off the ball, and they used me as a lead blocker more than a guy who's going to run with the ball. So I would lead the, the halfback or the fullback. I was the fullback, so the halfback or the running back or the quarterback on plays, and they put me blocking the defensive ends or outside linebackers or whatever to, as a lead blocker. So that was primarily why they did it. Okay. So that speed, you know, so I caught up with myself, and uh, so that was it. And then, but I think Charlie Hall from SC. Uh, came to our game scouting, and I don't know if he was there to scout me or if he was there just to look at the, you know players that are available. Because back in those days, the coaches did most of the scouting, <clears throat> and I, he saw me at fullback, so he, he liked the way it came off the ball, and he spoke to the coaches, and they said nice things about me, I suppose. And uh, but my grades, I had a 2.65 GPA. I didn't score real well on the SAT test. It was under a thousand, but you know I didn't try either. I just was there to answer questions and 
So I had to go to a junior college first and because uh, my uh, SAT scores were too low. So I went to, that was during the Vietnam War. So I went to Cerritos College for one semester. And from there, uh, I transferred in second semester to USC uh, okay. as a sophomore, freshman. And uh, uh, I remember uh, when spring training started, uh, I walked up to the board and they had, you know, all the players and what position you're in and what uh, what level you're on, first, second, third, or fourth, or fifth team. And I was, if there was a 12th team, I would have been the last guy. They put me at the end of the line and on, on, on both a uh, defensive tackle and an offensive tackle. And that kicked me off. Okay, that, I didn't like that. So I, it was the smartest move they ever did because, or they could have done to help me because uh, it gave me the real incentive to, to change their mind. And uh, I think within a week, running first team both ways, offense and defense. So uh, I thought they were going to play me. I was told that they were going to play me both ways. And but Coach McKay never did. And if if I were to go back to that moment in time today, I would tell him you either play me both ways or I'm going to go to another school because I didn't <laughs> like being taken off the field. Uh, you know, I, and I and I was the kind of guy that I could only play well if I was on the field, and I didn't have time to get off the field to think about things and relax. So I had to be on the field all the time. Right. And it was comforting. So I think it hurt my play. So as my sophomore year at SC, I got uh, I made all Pac-8 was a Pac-8 then, and I got uh, defense alignment of the year in Pac-8 as a sophomore. Uh, and then my junior year, they moved me to offensive tackle and from defensive end. And uh, you know they said they were going to play me both ways, but it never happened. I, I, don't, I think it was because I don't think they, they felt they needed it because they had good players on defense as well. Sure. But uh, and, and we had a we were rated number one in the season until we played Miami. We were six and zero, and Miami beat us in Miami and that three to nothing. I believe the score was. They kicked the field goal and beat us, and uh, then we dropped the six, and then our season fell apart. I don't know why, but it just fell apart. And then we went into my senior year, and you know, uh, O.J. Simpson was his first year at SC as a junior, and uh, kind of turned our program around. And I think we won the national championship my senior year. So, uh, yeah, it was, and uh, it was storybook college as well. I don't know what it's like today, and I hear a lot of rumors that, about what's going on at SC, but I. When I was there, they had the best coaches. The, uh, when they yelled at you, and they would scream at you, but it, they weren't screaming at you. They were screaming for you. They wanted you to do well. And the only way, you, you know, people don't understand. When you're out on a football field and you're tired, you, it's difficult to listen because you're, you're, you're sucking in wind. And the only way you can reach a kid under those circumstances is to yell at him to get his attention, to bring him in to what you're saying. And that's sure. why they yelled. 
it, parents don't like that, but it's necessary. It's necessary because you have to break through exhaustion and all the other distractions that are going on around you. You have to get him his attention, and the best way to do it is to raise your voice and yell for the kid. The kid will know if you're yelling for him or not by the way his mannerism is. And that's how all the coaches were at SC, every single one of them. And by the way, if the coach isn't uh, yelling at you or acknowledging you, you, that's when you have to worry. Right. Okay. Unless you're some OJ Simpson or someone of that stature, uh, they left me alone as well after I established myself there. Uh, they never, you know, talked to me. But if you were weren't first team and you weren't being the coaches that weren't giving you attention, that's when you have to worry. The reason they yell at you is because they see you have more ability than what you than what you're displaying, and they want you to be the very best they can be. So that you can be. So they they uh, they have to yell. You know, if you can't accept if you can't accept that, then uh, then it's not your sport. Yeah, and and that senior year at USC. Yeah, you you mentioned OJ. Your your sophomore year when you're playing defensive line, Mike Garrett is winning the Heisman Trophy at running back, and then your senior yeah. year, like you said, OJ comes in as a junior and runs for you know 1500 yards he would win the Heisman the next year and that that senior year you guys beat UCLA you beat Notre Dame UCLA's quarterback oh by the way Gary Beban won the Heisman that year um and then you go on to beat Indiana in the Rose Bowl for like like you said for the storybook year and the national championship um and I'm curious John McKay obviously legendary coach um, and and well known for his offensive linemen and for his running backs and the student body left and the student body right. Um, tell me what it was like, you know, playing for him uh, as a head coach. And Mark Mark Gu was the defensive line coach. He was my coach as a sophomore, and then Dave Levy was my coach as a junior and senior year. And he had a great quote about you. He said, lots of kids in college football are big, but not athletic. And a lot of young men can't handle their growth. But Yeri is an athlete and a great one. And I don't think he has a weakness. He said that when I was in college? Uh, I'm not sure when he said it, but he said it. <laughs> well, that was uh, very complimentary. Uh, that's, that's, that's an honor. You know, I, if, if I were to go back today, uh, I would have probably been a baseball player. I, I don't know if I would have played football. I, I would have played. I would have played football, but I think uh, I'm almost certain that I would. I would have concentrated on baseball rather than the game I did. Um, yeah, and those were some pretty legendary. If you had played baseball at USC, was that about the time that Tom Seaver was there? Yes, it was. I used to go to the games and watch him pitch, and then. I would watch the other teams pitch and I would say, God, I'd love to be up there hitting right now. And uh, uh, I, I wasn't, I honestly was never impressed with how far hard they threw. I, I look at it and say, God, I'd love to be up there to play. Uh, Tom was, he was, had tremendous uh, accuracy in his pitching control over the ball. Boy, he was, he hardly ever threw a ball when he was in college. It was always, 
you know, right at the knees of the hitter and was either inside or outside hit. He was perfection. Yeah. Um, he was a year older. He was a year older than I was, or two years. Okay. And then, and then your senior year. So, in addition to being all American for the second year in a row as an offensive lineman, you win the Outland Award, which is the trophy that goes to the top interior lineman in college football. And not only were you the first one in USC history, but to date, you're still the only one, which is incredible considering, you know, guys like Anthony Munoz and Tony Baselli and others have come through. Um, and then you're the first overall pick in the 1968 draft. Uh, and I looked it up in the 80 plus years of the NFL draft, exactly five linemen have gone first, Chuck Bednarik, you, Orlando Pace, Jake Long and Eric Fisher pretty incredible um did like did you know and obviously when you were getting drafted it had just been bednarik did any of that register with you or was that not you know something that you focused on at the time it was n not something i thought about or knew about or focused on uh i was told by my by my our defensive line coach margu that the vikings were going to pick me in the first pick about a week before the draft. But to me, all I wanted to do was play football. And it was, a, I didn't, I didn't see it as an honor. Uh, you know, I, I just saw it as an opportunity. Okay. Mm -hmm. now I would have played for free. And, and the guys on the team that I met there, we all would laugh about it. Said, you know, if they fed us, you gave us a room and a warm bed, we'd play this game because we, you never played for money. Uh, Money was, it, it was an issue because a lot of it was guys after a few years because they had families, but they never paid them very well. So most of the guys had an off-season job along with football back then. Sure. And, uh, but, uh, it, you know, you're, you played the game. I, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to downplay the players today when I say this, but you, you, you didn't play the game for money. You played the Playing the game for love came first because they'd never paid you very well. My first year salary was eighteen thousand dollars, and then it went to eighteen, twenty, I think twenty-two, twenty-four, and twenty-four. It was a four-year contract, number one pick in the draft. Now that's worth millions. And and by the way, our era paved the way for these guys to get that kind of money because the. The guys, a lot of guys back then tried to start unions. I wasn't involved with it. I wasn't a leader in it uh, at all. Uh, but the guys who, who started the union in pro football got cut, you know, because they, they found, the owners would find out they'd cut them. Uh, it wasn't a good thing to do. If you were an average player, if you're a great player, then they wouldn't cut you. So a lot of guys that were in the first few years of the NFL lost their jobs because they were trying to start the union. That's the way it was back then. And, yeah. uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I have not, no regrets about my, my career at all with, with the Vikings. The only, my last year with the Rams though, when I was traded there, I, I, I wouldn't go back to the Vikings. I, I decided I've had, had enough. Of playing for the Vikings. Okay, I, I, I just lost it. So I, I didn't go to training camp. 
And uh, about a week afterwards, Bud calls me, and Bud Grant calls me, and he, he's the exact conversation, but in essence, he was wondering if I was going to come back, and I said, you know, I wanted more money. Okay, it was my last year of the, of the con my contract. So he says, he goes, he goes, okay, we're, uh, we're going to trade you to the Rams. He says, do you have any objection to us trading you to the Rams? And I said, no. So uh, he traded me, and the next day, or maybe two days later, I was in training camp with the Rams. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't, I didn't want to play there. So they were going to pay me a lot of money or to buy. And uh, so I went to the Rams, and that, they had more talent than the Vikings had in terms player to player. Uh, I, I, I was impressed with how good the players were on that team. They didn't have the quarterback the Vikings had, like a friend Tarkin didn't and Joe Captain. Like that. The quarterback there wasn't in the same level that, that the Vikings had had, but the players were all talented and all gifted. I, I was very impressed with them. Yeah. But they couldn't win a game, you know, and uh, there are reasons for that, but it wasn't a team. They didn't play as a team. Uh, it was it was they were individuals, and it wasn't you know I, I played for Wes Hamilton and I played for my quarterback. I played for my teammates. They were the one and the fans, and I didn't want to disappoint the fans that are Viking fans. That didn't exist with the Rams. Players didn't play for the fans there. In Minnesota, they did. Yeah. Uh, they, they played for the teammates. So if you're going to be really good, and you, you just can't play for yourself. You, you need an edge, and the edge is looking your teammate in the eye and not wanting to let him down. That will get you ready for any game. Okay. Yeah. So there's no ups and downs. And you're going to put out the most because you're going to you're going to get an edge. This is not all about you, and that's what football is supposed to teach you. That this game is not about you; it's about us, and we're interdependent. And my success is dependent upon you, and vice versa. If I don't do my job, then you're going to suffer, and I'm not going to let you down. That was my motivation. I didn't ever want to look a teammate in the eye and let him know that I quit or I just took the day off. Okay. So. Yeah. I, I saw a quote from you. Um, you were talking, um, you were talking about like, you know, the talent level on those Vikings teams through the seventies and uh, you know, talking about like, you know, all the all pros and hall of famers on both sides of the ball, you know, was practice hard. And you said, well, look, after practice, after losses, the practices were really tough because everybody was angry at themselves. The entire team was, we had that very tough mentality that when we lost, you know, we wanted to get ourselves better. Nobody was blaming anybody else, but everybody just got that much more intense after a loss. The practices the next week were worse than the games. Okay. <laughs> everybody there, we were out there because we were mad at ourselves because we let everyone else down. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to the Vikings, so, so you go there your first year. So in your first 11 years, like I said at the top of the show, in your first 11 years, they go to the playoffs 10 times. Your rookie year is the first time they go, and that's the one year that you don't start. Um, 
but it's what's fascinating to me, and obviously this is in the pre-free uh, agency era, but already by 68, when you're a rookie, like a huge chunk of the core of those great 70s teams is in place. The defensive line, some of the linebackers, you're now on board, Mick Tinglehoff. I mean, it's just incredible how that team had come together. Obviously, Bud's the coach, Bud Grant's the coach. Jim Finks is the general manager, and he was largely responsible for kind of building that up. Did, did you have a relationship with Jim Finks? No, uh, you, you didn't have a relationship with anybody in management, or they're very polite when you went into the office, which is very rarely. And the people there were very supportive and ha- really well-run organization. Uh, but I didn't have a relationship with coaches. I never have had a relationship with a coach. I don't want to have a relationship with a coach. I don't want to be his buddy. I want him to be my leader. Okay. And uh, it's hard when you're, you feel that you're, he's your friend. You know, you, he needs the edge on you. So I've never wanted, I never wanted to be uh, a friend of a coach. And sure. uh, the reason that what happened my rookie year was, uh, it was during the Vietnam War and I was very low on the draft. I was like 114 in the draft out of 365 days. So uh, my, my birthday was pulled up very early. So they got me into an Army Reserve unit and, and the Army Reserve advanced infantry training uh, until the second week of the season <laughs> when I got out. So I missed most of the, you know, I mean, it's hard to, uh, hard to get a chance to play when you're in the army. Your entire 14 years with the Vikings, Bud Grant's the head coach, Jerry Burns is the offensive coordinator and John Michaels is the offensive line coach. A friend talking on a flight home after a game one time, you know, the veterans sat in the front of the plane. We got to sit first class. And he said, you know, if you know, if you can't play football for Bud Grant, you can't play for anyone. And boy, that was true. And I don't think there's a better statement you can say about a coach than that. That's the best. That's, that says more than enough. Okay. So uh, that was true about Bud. I think I saw it that you had said, the great thing about Bud was he never asked too much of you. The expectations were clear and he never sought to embarrass you. Front of the teammates. Yeah, he never did. No. Yeah, that's uh... he, he was he had the ability. Bud had this great uh, ability and all great coaches do. Uh, when he addresses the team, all the players, he he made you feel as though he was, he was speaking to you directly. You, you know, you got 55 guys in the room or 50 players on the team or 48 or whatever it was. Every player felt that he was talking about him because one, one day, and I realized that after one day uh, was after, I think, practice or something like that or a game, and uh, we were getting ready to leave, and I think we were in a shower, and, and one of the players there said Bud was talking about me, and I, I laughed inside because I thought he was talking about me. <laughs> we both thought we were, Bud was pressing us. So I realized at that point that he had that ability to make every player feel that he was addressing them individually in front of the whole team, but he never embarrassed them. He never uh, insulted them. That's a great talent to have. And so meanwhile, so as the you know, late 60s, 
you know, early seventies, you're starting to go to the playoffs pretty much every year. You lose to the chiefs in the super bowl. Ed white is drafted. So now you've got you and Ed white and McTinglehoff. You still have Grady Alderman, uh, Milt Sunday. So I, I, I was talking to Chuck Foreman. I interviewed Chuck Foreman on this show, maybe a month or two ago. He said that Milt Sunday was one of the first guys to really buy into weightlifting and that, you know, a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the other teammates kind of, you know, bought in with him. I never lift, began lifting weights until I was 34 years old. Oh, is that right? Never okay. Yeah, I never, I never, I hardly worked out. About, I'd say a month before football, maybe five weeks, I'd start running uh, the track uh, and I'd, I'd get out, get out, I would get up maybe two miles. The most I ever ran was three miles uh, to get ready for training camp. Hmm. There were times in the beginning when I didn't do anything. I'd lay on the couch or, you know, hang around and then show up. It was hell. I mean, it was rough. I mean, you really, you know, you're dealing with dehydration. So it was rough, but I made it through. Yeah, I guess that's back in the days when training camp truly was to get back into shape because people had those off-season jobs you were talking about earlier. Well, they, they, they were rough. I mean, they were harsh. I mean, not like today. And, and, you know, when I was at SC, they had, they'd have two practices in full gear. And, uh, you know, they didn't have water breaks until I think my this SC started having a water break my sophomore year or my, my, uh, yeah, my sophomore year, they started having water breaks. They didn't have any at Cerritos. There's no such thing. You went the whole practice and they, and uh, without water, without anything, and no helmet. You couldn't get take a knee. You had to, you know, if you were tired, winded, you had to put your hands on your knee. They allowed you to do that, but you couldn't take your helmet off or anything. It was, That's amazing. That, that was the way it was in high school. It's Fritos, and that was the way it was at SCU in, ter- in terms of your helmet. You never were allowed to take your helmet off. You went the whole practice with your helmet on. That's and, amazing. Uh, in August in Southern yeah. California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I, I, they didn't have water breaks. I don't think they had the water breaks in the morning practice. The first, I think it's hard for me to recollect, but I think we, the first year I was there, uh, we didn't have water breaks. It started my junior year at SC. They started having water breaks with that, that salty drink. Nobody wanted to drink the water anyway. It was so salty. It was, yeah. didn't taste very <laughs> So a lot of guys didn't drink it. And then uh, later on, I think Gatorade came out, which was taste, tasted better. So players go drink Gatorade. But uh, they, I think they had one one water break of practice for but then they were on you they didn't want you standing you know like cows all around the food trough <laughs> guys drinking right. water they had one little bitty cup was about the half of a shot glass and you you down that and then one and you just throw it on the ground and run back to your position that's amazing that's the way it was so, that's crazy. but i like that i'm sorry I like it. I think that 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 toughens you up. And just oh, yeah. it, it affects performance. I don't think so. I think I think if you're going to be an athlete, you know, like today they have the, the combines. You know, these guys work out, have speed coaches, and they learn how and they run in there. Everything is set up for uh, for the combine and the best time in this. 
But that's not football. I don't want to know when you're you're in the best shape. I want to know what you're like in the fourth quarter. I want to know when your legs are weary and you're tired. That's when I want to see how fast you are in the 40. And that's when I we were timed. We were timed at the end of practice, not at the beginning. They didn't, you know, I want, they want to know what you're like when you're exhausted. That's your true time, in my opinion, when yeah. it comes to sports. You know, I mean, you know, track and field, they they come in and, you know, for the best time, that's great. That's the nature of track and field. But that's not the nature of football. Right. You get in and ball or any basketball, it's not how good you are before the game. It's how good you are in the fourth quarter. That's when they... You know, that's that's the way they we would run us in high school. We run at the end of practice for 40 time. And then they only did timing once a year. And then the Vikings, we ran at the end of practice as well. Or if not at the end, pretty close to the end. Well, and and speaking of practices, um, obviously, you're when when the first strings went up against each other, you're playing against Carl Eller. What did that do? What was it like going up against, you know, a Hall of Famer year after year after year uh, in practice? You know, he come hard and I came, you know, it was maybe three quarters, two thirds speed. But, you know, when you're like him, you, you don't have to because they know what you're going to do in a game and they don't, you don't want to play your game in practice. You don't want to leave your game on the practice field. Right. And then, and in 72, Fran Tarkenton, who had been traded away uh, from the Vikings to the Giants and, and, in part, you were the you were the exchange of the number one pick in in '68. He comes back in '72, and at the same time, they trade away Gary Quazzo and pick up John Gilliam, a great wide receiver back in those '70s. Um, and you know, all of a sudden, the offense kind of kicks it to another level. And the next year, you draft Chuck Foreman, who obviously is one of the first guys to come out who you know runs and catches um, out of the backfield. And I'm just curious, you know, kind of what your take on, on, you know, those changes in that, you know, that couple of years were. And also I'd love for you, I had seen where you talked one time about how you had to change your game a little bit when Fran came along because of his propensity to kind of drift a little bit in the pocket before he set up. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all that. I was getting yelled at by my offensive line coach that the defensive end was in the face of Francis when he threw the ball. And I w- and they had a sideline camera, and I'd watch my drop. And I'd watch the, my left tackles drop, and uh, you, you, I couldn't tell he was drifting towards me. All And I'm going, my drop is exactly the same as our left tackle, and why is my guy in his face, and I'm between them, but Francis is, you know, 5'11", uh, or maybe six foot, and uh, these guys are got long arms and they're raising their arms up, and I was getting yelled at by my coach until they put an end zone camera in. And when they put that end zone camera, I realized I saw what was happening. Fran would he would drift to his right and throw behind the right guard, and sometimes even a little more than that. He would throw anywhere from the inside shoulder of the right guard to the outside shoulder of the right guard. He'd do this little uh, jig step. Uh, to the right, and, and he, you know, in practice, he didn't do it. He dropped right, right back behind the quarterback. Now, he didn't do that because I was there. Yeah, I know that. He just did his naturally the way he did it in the game. He, 
you play differently in the game. And so I said, God, I can't, I can't drop like that. It's going to be, I'm going to yell that. And uh, so I, I, I went to a short set pass blocking. I said, I can't drop back anymore. I got to take a guy on the line. So I changed my, my style of blocking when, when he was a quarterback to a short set blocking. And because uh, I had to. And uh, I, I was at, uh, years later, I was at a, uh, I was out and there's a, a guy who scouts NFL players and grades them. His name is Mike Giddings. He was the head coach. And he looked at me, he says, Ron, he, he said, you're the best short set court, uh, running uh, offensive lineman in all of football. <laughs> and I started laughing because I, I didn't say anything, but because I said to myself, I said, yeah, that's because Francis, not because of me. So. That's pretty you know, funny. So I, but a good compliment. He, he complimented me, but it wasn't because I, I wanted to set short is because I had to, I had to adjust. It was out of necessity. Yeah. Uh, out of, yeah. Necessity. Well, and, and, about Chuck Foreman, so I interviewed Mel Blunt on this show about a month ago, and we were talking about how the Steelers were built. And it's always fascinating to me, you know, how a team is put together, especially back then before free agency, where it pretty much had to be done through the draft. And he was saying that, you know, they, they were starting to get all the pieces together. And then Franco Harris drafting him just changed everything. All of a sudden, it was just this threat out of the backfield. And the Vikings had always had good running backs. But but not with the speed that Chuck had. What, what did what did Chuck Foreman bring to the team when he was drafted in '73? Well, I re- I'll never forget the first play that Chuck. Now I didn't know Chuck was in the game. By the way, you know I, I was listening to the quarterback in the huddle, and, and they put Chuck in, and we we call a four thirty five, and that's where I blocked down on the defensive tackle, and then the guard steps around blocks off the defensive end. So they call a 435. And I, I remember distinctly, I couldn't believe how fast Chuck hit the ball, hit the hole. He, he was through that hole so fast. I was going, oh, God, this is going to be a lot better now. Which I hear. So, uh, boy, he, he had an incredible start. He was, uh, he, back then, you know, uh, an eight-yard game was a big game for a running back. So I think he, he, he might have run for a, 12 yards before they tackled him. But he hit that hole so fast. And, you know, he was a, he was a tough, tough player. Great great running back as well. Made the offensive line better. Right. And in those days, well, uh, when they said the five hole, when the coach said, you know, this was the five hole, uh, 435, uh, you, the running back ran the five hole. It's not like today. Today, the, the running backs run off of the block. Right. Okay. The, the offensive don't have to control the defense alignment like they did in the old days. If, if you ran a 435 or a 35, uh, I had to uh, hook the top defensive end. Okay. And, and if I didn't hook them and the back ran inside, they yelled at the back. Okay. Back had to hit the right the, the hole. He had to run off my right hip. 
And on a 435, he has a runoff of my right hip when I block on the defensive tackle because we are X blocking. Right. And uh, you ran the running back ran the hole. There is no option in the old days. That's that's how the game has changed. Today, you know, I remember watching uh, some of these guys today. You know, they give ground when they block a uh, running block. They actually they give ground. In, in th- those days, if you were an offensive lineman and you gave ground on a, on a run block, you you, did, you were going to be cut, man. They, you know, the, you don't give ground. You take ground. They don't come off on the ball low. It's just a different game 100%. I'm not saying ours was better or theirs is better. I'm just saying it was different, okay? There was a different methodology to playing the game. So... Uh, so, so I, you know, they they yell at the running back. We didn't run their hole. They had said the two hole. You better run that two hole. Okay. <laughs> right. So they can if you and if somebody if there there's somebody there, then they yell at the guard. Okay. They yell at the center. But you ran your hole, so you're okay. Don't blame. You have no blame there. But right. they would. They didn't like. So they they would come down on running backs in that era. And in in. 75, again, you're going to the playoffs every year. You're going to a lot of different Super Bowls. 75, you, you guys have a great season. You're 12 and two. You lose to the Cowboys in, you know, obviously one of the more famous plays of all time. You, you were on both ends of Hail Marys, of, of dramatic Hail Marys in your career. The bad one was this one. Um, I guess my first, when Drew Pearson caught the ball from, from uh, Roger Staubach, uh, I guess my first thought is, do you think there was offensive pass interference or, hey, you know, they completed the pass and they won the game? I know it was offensive pass interference. Right. I know that. You know how I know it? How? I watched Drew Pearson. I saw his both of his hands push Nate Wright in the, in the small of his back with both hands. He pushed him and pushed him down. Nate fell. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's the truth. And that's it. Officiating back then, they didn't grade the player, the, the officials. They didn't, uh, at the end of the season, they, they, they you know, they, they didn't have instant replay. Okay. Instant replay changed everything. Right. Uh, because they, now they were, on, they were on the spotlight. They're going to be held accountable. And back in the old days, if they didn't like you, they would call you for a penalty. They didn't care. They had nothing, no consequences. But when they put in uh, uh, instant replay, they couldn't get away with it anymore. Right. They, I'm, I, that, I, if they didn't like you, if you got in their face during a game or something like that, and to the official, they're going to call you for a penalty if they can get away with it. Yeah, you know, like you know, like uh, there was a official when I was playing the Rams and uh, against Jack, and Jack comes up off the ball and he slides like a like a guy runner does at first base, and I, I didn't touch him with my hand. The only thing that, that touched him was the top of my helmet, and and the the official throws a flag on me. Okay. And yeah. uh, Jack gets up, and he looks at me. He starts laughing. <laughs> he starts laughing like I'm hold, uh, holding for him. 
falling on the ground. Well, and you know, it's funny you mentioned Jack, Jack Youngblood, Youngblood obviously. Um, you you guys dominated the Rams through the 70s in the playoffs. I mean, they were very good. They were winning NFC Wests every year while you were winning the NFC Central every year. But you played them a lot in the playoffs and you beat them almost every time. One of them was the Mud Bowl after the 77 season. And you look at clips of that and you think that's either awful or a lot of fun. What, what was your take on that game, that Mud Bowl game against the Rams in the playoffs? When we went out on the field, we were happy that the conditions were like that. So, uh, you know, it's muddy on both sides of the field and it's cold on both sides of the field. And I, I'm as cold as they are. Sure. And when it's 52 below, we played in Cleveland at 52 degrees below zero with a windshield. Played in a couple of games like that. At the end of the game, it got down that cold. So, you know, the conditions are miserable, but, you know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's one of perception. I mean, if you're going to let it affect you, then you're not going to have a good outcome. But we didn't let that affect us. That's the thing about Bud. He, why he was a good coach, he wouldn't let the weather conditions. And we were, you know, we were from Minnesota. We're going to have inclement weather up there at the end of the year, guaranteed. We're going to have some cold, the last two games, maybe cold games. So, you know, it's coming. And in fact, he would give a, Bud would give his famous talk uh, about the Eskimos during World War II. And uh, what would happen is they'd put the, the Marines and the, the Army guys up on tractors, and they'd, every 10 minutes they had to get off the tractor and go and get warm, warm up again. So the road wasn't getting built. And one time, uh, one of the Eskimos got up there, and he was up there for eight hours, okay, you, building the road. He never came down. So right. they trained Eskimos how to drive tractors, and they got the road built. So his point was that you're going to be cold. He said, the Eskimos are as cold as you are. There's no difference. He said, but they're going to stay up there all day, and he says, it's going to be cold for you. So don't let it affect your play. You know it's going to be cold. I don't want to see a let up in your performance just because it's cold. That was his speech. Mind over matter. Yeah, it's mind over matter. I mean, it's cold off for everybody. But you can't let that affect your, your, your work. So we, we, and we used to laugh at that all the time. A lot of guys thought that was really a funny speech, but it was a great speech because it worked. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, if there's any one iconic image of, of the Vikings in the 70s, it's those you know, December and January games at the old Met stadium with, uh, you know, all the players, no sleeves, no gloves, no jackets. Uh, well, maybe jackets, but um, no, you know, uh, warmers on the bench or anything like that and winning, <laughs> you know, just winning in those conditions. And then, and then in those late seventies, all of a sudden, you know, all good things come to an end. Frank Tarkenton retires and Jim Marshall is retiring and Alan Page is, is let go and goes off to Chicago. Paul Krause is retiring, uh, you know, kind of one by one, a lot of the guys are either retiring or being traded towards the end of their careers. What, what was that time like after having been with this group of guys for 10 years? The problem with that was that the players that were replacing them weren't as good as they were. Right. Okay? They were players, but they weren't, uh, 
they they didn't have the this you know they were not Carl Ellers and they weren't uh, uh, Alan Pages they weren't Fran Tarkentons they weren't they just weren't of that caliber and there's nothing against them but you know they you know how do you beat a guy who's in the Hall of Fame how do you take his place it's hard right. when he's having a Hall of career I I, I don't know I, yeah. that's the only reason I could think. You know, when I went to the Rams, that's the way it was there. I mean, like I said, they had really good talent, but it, yeah. they didn't have the team that we had. We had a better team. Yeah. Because of, we were, we, yeah, they, they weren't a team. I, I couldn't believe it. It was so disappointing when I went there because I had such high respect for them, and I was surprised at how good the players were. And, I mean, right across the board there were a couple areas that you know they weren't as good as us but you know quarterback was one but uh you know they you know they didn't win so talent is not the sole determination of being a winner you need a lot you need the all guys you know 11 guys on offense 11 guys on defense Team players, you know, that'll make you a better player. Yeah. If you don't play for, if you don't play for yourself only, you'll be a great player. Yeah. It, it, interesting that Rams team you joined, and like you said, they it was a strike shortened season. You were two and seven. Jackie Slater was on that team. He was one of the other offensive tackles. What was your impression of him? Obviously, early on in his career, his Hall of Fame career. Well, that's why the Rams traded for me because Jackie had a bad ankle okay. and they were worried that he wasn't going to be able to play that year. So they traded for me and, uh, uh, because, and that, uh, that's why, okay. uh, but Dennis Hera came up to me. I had my best year ever was my the, the year before I got traded my, uh, uh, second to last year uh, was the best year I ever had in football. It would have been 81. Huh? 81 with the Vikings? Yeah, with the Vikings. And Dennis here came up to me when I, I got in training camp. I got out of the car. And I was walking across the sidewalk there. And Dennis comes up and he goes, hey, Yerry, they, they asked me how you were playing this year. I said, he said, you, you had a great year, a great season last year, one of the best. And I, and I you know, I, I knew that I had a great season here before. I had a hell of a year. So uh, I didn't make all pro or anything like that, but uh, you can't always, people who pick that, you don't really know about it. So anyways, I thanked him and that was it. And then uh, I went to the team. I, I was just, I, I was amazed how good they, talent they had, but how they couldn't win. Yeah. There was, uh, uh, the players didn't respect the coaches, and the coaches didn't respect the owners, and the players didn't respect the owner. I respected our owners, and I respected our coaches. I may not have liked them, but I respected them. Sure. Uh, yeah, the coach, you know, the coach, yeah. the Rams coach that year was Ray Malavasi, and probably unsurprisingly, they went, "You go, you guys go two and seven. He's let go." And that and John Robinson, actually from USC, was brought in after that, right? Yeah, and he t- 
turned the team around very quickly and because they had so much talent. Yeah. I think didn't Robinson make the playoffs his first year? I think so, because I think they got Eric Dickerson in the draft that year. Well, they had a, I mean, uh, they weren't in the same caliber as Eric, but they had really good running backs. Those guys could scoot. I mean, they were, yeah. they, they had good talent. Oh, that's right. I guess they had Wendell Tyler. He, he was on that team, right? Wendell Tyler? Tyler, he was a heck of a running back. Yeah. I was impressed with Wendell. You know? Uh, but it was, it was I, I, I can't explain that. But, you know, my opinion of Jackie Slater was I, I thought he was one of the best. In fact, I thought he was the best offensive lineman in football that, you know, that year. I don't, I didn't think anybody was better than him. And I right. think he, he got line, uh, N- NFC lineman of the year as well, didn't he? A couple times, three times. I he, think he got NFC lineman well, three times or four times. Okay. I thought Jackie was the best, one of the best offensive linemen in football. Same as Ed White. Trust me, if I say they were good, they were good because I have a high standard. And uh, you know, the other guy that I admired probably more than anybody was Bob Brown with Philadelphia and uh, uh, Raiders. You know, huh? And he went to the Rams and the Raiders as well. Yeah. I, I always liked Bob as well. But, uh, but you know, there are, there are guys that were that are like George Koontz is another one. George, was a, he was a great offensive tackle. Yeah, George Falcons. was great. Falcons. And if you look at it, yeah, he he was in I think six Pro Bowls, but he was better than uh, uh, than he got credit for by far. And, and he was not on really good teams, so I don't you know it helps to be on a winning football team to, to be recognized. But George was great. Uh, Bob was, but you know, great. Uh, Ed was great. Uh, there, uh, you know, Kuchenberg. I used to watch Ku- George Ku- Kuchenberg with with Miami. He was unbelievable. I mean, I cannot believe that he isn't in the Hall of Fame either. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Until, these guys were dominant. Ed was dominant. Uh, so was uh, George, and you know, Bob's in the Hall of Fame, but it took him twenty years to get in or. 30 years again, and I mean, that's that's an insult, to my opinion, and it Bob discredits Brown. those who are, those who are voting, it, it, it's, it's a discredit to them. How they could do that, to me, is like, God, you, it's clear you weren't, you don't watch the game. Right. Because you really watch the game and watch them, and, you know, for an offensive lineman to grade him, you got to know what the play is. Like I said, the blocks. You know, you got to know if the guy is doing his job or not, and you don't know that unless you know the play. Yeah. You know, you hook a guy, and the back runs inside. He's, oh, the guy, he got beat. The guy hooked him. You know, he didn't, you know, he, he the, the defense men beat him on the inside. But it's really the running back's fault. So the, so the, they blame the offensive lineman. But, uh, you know, the, the guys that I, I could tell when the running back has the ball where he's headed, and I'll tell you, these guys are great linemen. And, uh, you know, they, it's, 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 to me, it, it irritates me because they're deserving of more in terms of the respect and, the, you know, the uh, accomplishments because they, they should be in the Hall of Fame every bit as much as I should be. 
when I talked to Chuck Foreman, he, he, you know, we were talking about various guys on the team and he said, you know, obviously Mick and Ron are absolutely deserving of being in and, and they're where they should be. But he said, how is Ed White not in the Hall of Fame? Touche. Yep. I mean, what can I say? It's, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, you know, I tried to get Ed in, uh, you know, by sending out letters on his behalf and trying to get uh, him in because it, it's a discredit to the voters. I mean, it's, a, it's actually an insult to me that, you know, but the, they, they don't take the time. You, you have to be in the game every day like we are to, to know if a guy's really good. They, you know, they should have the, you know, a, a different method in the way they vote for it because they're overlooking players that are every bit as good as the ones that are in the hall. Right. And yeah. who are some of, I know on the old decade team for the 70s, it was you and Rayfield Wright and Dan Deardorff and Art Shell. Were there any, and you obviously just mentioned a handful of guys like George Coons and um, at the guard position, Kuchenberg and White. Um, any other tackles either from your decade or, you know, in, in more recent time that really stands out where you watch a guy and just say that guy plays a really nice game? Yeah, Jackie Slater. Yeah. But he wasn't there in the 60s, in the 70s. I think he came in at the end of the 70s. Yeah, that's right. And then he was like 80s and into the 90s. Yeah. Uh, uh, any other offensive linemen? Uh, I think, in my opinion, Dan, George, and Rayfield were, in my opinion, from watching films, they were the three best that I saw. Okay. Okay, I, I would agree with that. They, they were the three best. Uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't watch enough film of anybody else. I thought, I thought uh, when Norm Evans with Miami, I thought he had, he had probably the best quickness off the ball of any lineman I ever saw. But he was too, he's, you know, I talked to him one time and he said he, was, he played the game at 256 and that's why he was too light, you know, because, you know, momentum is determined by velocity times mass. So he had incredible velocity, but he didn't have the mass. That creates velocity times mass equals momentum. And uh, he was a little light, but boy, he came off that ball. I couldn't believe how fast he got on defense alignment. Hmm. He, Interesting. He, I, I admired him for his quickness off the ball. And uh, same with Bob Brown. Bob would explode off the ball. He yeah. came out and. Uh, so, uh, you know, so that's, but I don't, uh, I can't remember anybody else, in my opinion, was as consistent as much as they were. Right. And, and his control, you know, it gets down to controlling the defensive linemen. These guys controlled them. They were in control of them. And that put Jackie Slater on that more as much as anybody. Uh, yeah. They had good control over the, the linemen. Right. Um, and to me that and during your era, obviously some some you know fantastic defensive ends. I mean, we've talked about Eller, um, 
you know, Elsie Greenwood, Leroy Selman, you know, early on in your career, Deacon Jones, you mentioned Jack Youngblood, any of those defensive, you know, maybe Fred Dean, any of those defensive ends stand out as guys that, you know, just were a, a real handful all game? Uh, of all the defensive ends that I played against, the one that I felt was the, the I thought was the best was Jack Youngblood. And, sure. and the reason was he was intense. He came hard every play. In the beginning of his career, he did that. He, he was a very aggressive, intense, determined defensive end. And uh, I would say, you know, Jack, and then I would say, you know, but it's unfair because uh, Deacon was at the end of his career. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, Deacon was 35 or like that so it's you know it's not fair i would have been i never played against him when he was you know in his prime you know so uh and when he was on the hunt you know you kind of change as you get older you know, right you get in the mid 30 uh 34 35 you change as a player you kind of revert back to where you were, you were when you were a kid you need that good coach to keep you motivated but uh because you played so much uh and uh uh let me think of any Elsie was good uh sure burned in herder when i played against him in miami in the super bowl i thought he was a lot better than what i saw on film <laughs> yeah i watched on film about three or four games and i said okay i you know this is but when i played him it was a lot different he was a really good football player he put out when he played against me and uh, I had a I had a hard time with him you know I think I did okay but uh, you know I, I my you, you know you don't ever evaluate a player by the cover you got to play against him and that happened a lot in my career guys I were a lot better when I played against him than what I saw in film okay so, but I thought Vern was a heck of a defensive end as well. Uh, that's a, that was the team that went, what, 16 or 18 and 0? 16 and 0, they won all the games, that team. That team was the best football team we ever played against. Oh, is that we right? played against Miami. Oh, yeah, that was by far the best football team I ever played against. Uh, we played Miami in the first game of the season, and they beat us by a field goal by your premium at the end of the game of, like, minute left or something and then we played them in the super bowl and they got better i mean they were they, they, nobody was going to beat them it was the best football team it was the best team with the best players i thought i ever played against yeah you they beat you in in 72 they went 17 and 0 and they beat you in the regular season. And then it was 73, you guys played them in the Super Bowl. Are you saying those those two years combined, or are you saying specifically the 17 and 0 team? They were the 17 and 0 team we played against was the best football team I played against ever. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, they had that crazy running game and Den Herter and Stan Phil and Manny Fernandez up front. Then they had Zonka on offense, you know, I mean, and uh, uh, God. Jim kick it a fullback or halfback, and they had uh, a really good offensive line. They had Larry Little. They had yep. Kuchenberg. They had a good center. I forget his name. 
had, I think Norm was on that team still, and their left tackle was really good. They had uh, a really good tight end. Mark Fleming was there. Sure. Uh, they, they, they have uh, the thing that stood out the most for me. If you look at Pittsburgh and you look at Miami, the, the thing that people don't recognize is their secondary. And what I noticed, I knew we were in trouble when I watched their secondary tackle. Offensive linemen would block the defensive line and the linebackers. But the line, but the secondary, were they were so good, they made the tackle on the, almost at the line of scrimmage. Unbelievably fast. They were tackling guys at, at two yards. Wow. They support, they support, yes. And that, and they were great, all of them were great tacklers. Mel, uh, Donnie, what was his, Mike Wagner, whoever it was the other day, they had, they had great tackling uh, defensive backs, and they made the play at the line of scrimmage. Uh, both of them had great tackling uh, defensive backs. Yeah. That's why they were in in the Super Bowls. Yeah. Yeah, those yeah. Dolphins teams, Jake Scott, Dick Anderson, Curtis Johnson. Yeah. Mel under Pittsburgh, and, uh, I mean, these guys, they made all the plays. It was amazing they, they, how good they were. Uh, you know, Jake Scott is – I don't know. Is he in the Hall of Fame? I don't think he is. Tell you what, that kid could kid could play. You know, I mean, uh, they were best secondaries I've ever seen. Were those two secondaries on those two teams? They they made them great, in my opinion. They were yeah. they were great without them, but they were really un, unbeatable with them. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the Dolphin Center a minute or two ago. I think I think you were talking about Jim Langer, who I think ended up playing a year or two for the Vikings at the very end of his career. Yes. In my opinion, Jim Langer was the best center I've ever seen. Yeah, I told him that too. I thought he was the best center I ever watched play football. Actually, actually, and I think Langer was on the team. And I'll, I'll bring up these two things to to wrap it up. Um, in '80, which is your second to last year in Minnesota, we talked about the the hail mary that went against you guys. In '80, your uh, a win clinches a playoff spot for you. You're playing the Cleveland Browns. Tommy Kramer's the quarterback and you're, you're down and they set up a great play just before the Hail Mary, kind of a, a hook and ladder. And I believe it was Ted Brown runs it, I don't know, 30 or 40 yards, something like that on a hook and go. Um, and then that sets up the Hail Mary to Ahmad Rashad. Uh, tell, tell me about that play at, at the old Met Stadium. I can't. Because I'm tied up watching my guy. I don't know. You know, you don't see a lot of the game because you're 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 in a clinch with the guy in front of you. You're in a you're grappling with the guy in front of you. So a lot of times they throw the ball and you don't even you see the running back after he's he's got the ball, not before. It's almost like you're going more on the roar of the crowd than actually seeing the play happen. You know, it, you, you're really, it, it, things happen so fast that you don't evaluate. You don't, you, you know, and that's the other thing in football. The great teams are this. Here's another trait that all great teams have. The only player that you grade is yourself. I never watched any of the players on my team on the offense block. I never watched Ed White block. 
Very seldom did I watch them. I can't say never. I never watched Grady Alderman, Steve Riley, Mick. I never watched the tight ends. I never watched the only person I watched on every play. If you ran a play over 10 times, the only person I would keep my eyes on was me. Okay? So I I always thought every player was great. Because if you stop watching yourself and you start watching your the other players on the team, you get an opinion. And that's the worst thing you can do. Sure. As a football player, as an athlete, is to get an opinion on your teammate. Just keep your opinion to yourself. Don't grade or evaluate or reach an opinion on a person. And if you don't know how he's doing, you just can make an assumption he's going to do his job like I'm going to do mine. Right. And the big mistake is when guys start doing that, it's, it leads to a lot of dissension on the team, and that's what happened with the Rams. That was That's one of the things that was going on. That never happened with the Vikings when we were really good. That never happened. Guys never graded one another. We were all in this thing together, and I'm going to do my job, and if we don't win, it's my fault, not yours. It's my fault. I could have done better. If I had made a block and tried harder, the running back would have made more yards, and we could have gone down the field and scored. Yeah. It was, it was where I lacked not anybody else. Right. Nobody plays a perfect game. Nobody plays a perfect game. Uh, you can always, you could have done something better. You got a, a lot of plays and a lot of time, but you could have done something more than what you did. So until you play the perfect game, you know, don't worry about anybody else. Just worry about yourself. I thought, I thought I'd read, I, I, I watched your Hall of Fame speech and, and I thought it was great. And I, I thought I would read a quote from it because I think it kind of captures your, you know, kind of mentality towards the game and also just, you know, kind of the position you played. Uh, in your Hall of Fame speech, you said, the creed of the offensive lineman defines the American spirit, which is built into the fabric of football. Every play and every block I ever made was to help our running back gain yardage or our quarterback and wide receiver complete a pass not for individual glory, but for the benefit of the greater good for the success of the team. I thought that kind of perfectly encapsulated uh, my, my sense of how you view the game and, and the position. That's right. And I, that's how great teams, the players, that's the emotional uh, logic, reasoning of all the other players. Nobody plays for themselves. Right. Because they didn't. The guys that was around talking about not only me, everybody was like that. When we have those really good teams, nobody played for themselves. You know, players on those teams were happier to see your teammate do well than yourself. And that's 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 the essence of success. And that's the way it should be in every aspect of life. Look, Ron Yeri, thank you so much for taking the time. It's, it's been great listening to the stories of growing up in LA and your USC years, obviously playing for those iconic Vikings teams of the seventies. Um, and, you know, obviously an incredible hall of fame career and, and always interesting getting your takes on, you know, the other teams and players you played with and against. So I really appreciate you coming on to, uh, to chasing hardware today. 
Thank you. Enjoyed it. And good luck to you, Rich. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com